When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dina Nieri, who's here to share her new book, Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. Welcome to the show, Dina. Hi, Christina. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about your new book. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, well, my name is Dina Nayeri. I'm a writer um, of fiction and nonfiction. I, I've been a writer um, <clears throat> for, I guess, about 15 years, 10, 15 years. <laughs> I've forgotten. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I write a lot about um, just stories of displacement and outsiderness, stories from my own childhood, um, just kind of using my experiences as a refugee and an immigrant, um, <clears throat> and also, I guess, as an Iranian. Um, and uh, yeah, now I guess I am also on the faculty at the University of St. Andrews. You share in the book about reading, uh, particularly when you were a young teenager and what books meant to you and the things that you were looking for in books. Did you know that you wanted to be a writer? What led you on this path? Actually, it was kind of a um, strange and roundabout path. I, uh, growing up, I guess, as a child, I, I was part of a very, you know, literary and academic family. And of course, I wasn't very aware of it, just that, you know, we always had books around and, and um, everybody in the family had some sort of poetic and artistic ambition, I think. Um, you know, my father memorized all of this old Iranian poetry and and um, my mother's family, you know, my grandmother wrote poetry. Um, my, my mother also, you know, d- did writing and they all kind of dabbled in the arts. It's something very Iranian, but it's also kind of um, a very Iranian story, I guess, of our time to not pursue that professionally. They were doctors. So, you know, I always say I come from a family of doctors and poets um, or, you know, kind of the uh, kind of uh, what, what is the word, I guess they're um, not aspiring poets, but, you know, yearning poets, um, people who want to be um, have an artistic life. And so I think I grew up always using creativity as an outlet and reading a lot and writing a lot, finding myself in books. But I didn't actually consider that as a possible career path, and especially not after we became refugees. And then, you know, years later arrived in Oklahoma. At that point, I was all about security. You know, I there was no chance that I was going to do anything but to try to kind of build myself home and roots and stability. And and that was what, you know, I equated with career ambition in my mind. So um, it took me until my mid, you know, late 20s to really admit that I was born to be a writer and nothing else would make me happy. Did you get formal education for writing? Because you take us through in the book about going to Harvard and getting your business degree and getting graduate degrees. And that that was part of your plan for security, of really having financial security and professional polish, and then going towards being a writer in, in many ways is sort of 
abandoning all of that polish and and demeanor and professional um, uh, security that a business world would give you. Writers are often precariously paid. Yes. Um, well, <clears throat> you have to pardon, by the way, my cold. Um, but yeah, I uh, I think when we were in Oklahoma, which is where we arrived after our two years of being refugees, um, I had now experienced what it was like to go from a kind of fairly well-to-do family, a stable family in Iran, to being completely, you know, poor without anything, um, you know, having lost everything, um, to arriving in this new land, in this new home, you know, at kind of the bottom rung of society. So I became fairly obsessed with this notion of, you know, how do I get it all back? Um, when I was in high school in Oklahoma, and I've written about this, I guess, a lot, but I was obsessed with getting into Harvard. Um, and so I did everything I possibly could. And I found out, I was very, very surprised, I guess, at the beginning, that it wasn't just a question of academics, the way it is in Iran, um, that, you know, in order to get into Harvard, um, or any of these incredibly, you know, aspirational elite universities, I was supposed to be this American notion of well-rounded, um, <clears throat> which I later realized, by the way, has been contrived to allow, you know, rich kids to compete with very, very brilliant poor kids um, to, or, and to win. Um, but anyway, um, I... Um, I became, so I, I thought, you know, I'm going to find a sport and I'm going to win a national championship in it. And so I very strategically chose uh, a martial art, chose Taekwondo because it had very few girls and because, you know, trophies were handed out by weight and belt and, 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 um, you know, gender and, you know, age actually, it, it was divided up in so many little categories. Um, and with so few girls that I could actually have a chance of winning a lot of medals and things. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I did that got into Princeton. And at Princeton, I um, was only going to study economics. Actually, funny enough, at the very beginning, in the first couple of years, I had this wonderful professor who said to me, you know, looking at my class list and looking at what I was doing with my free time, you know, just reading books and novels and, you know, taking all the English classes that I could with my free credits. And he, he looked at my schedule and he said, Tina, you should study literature you want to study literature. Like, um, and I said, no, no, I'm good at math and I'm going into the business world and I'm going to be safe. So I'm going to study economics. And, you know, he kind of shook his head and he, I think he could tell that he couldn't talk me out of it. Um, so, you know, then from there, I joined this company called McKinsey and company, which is where everybody, I guess, was trying to get in New York city. It was, um, and and then I went to Harvard Business School. And only after that did I realize this is not for me. When, you know, I was looking at the prospect of going back to McKinsey, um, I was so sad, so upset. I remember McKinsey left a voicemail for me right around when it was time to come back, you know, when business school was finishing up. And I burst into tears and I thought, you know, I I, I love this. You know, I, I, I love all my colleagues there. They've done so much for me, but I can't go back to that life. Um, and so I started to write. And years later, I, you asked me, funny, your original question was, do I have any writing education? And then I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is this you know, wonderful place. Um, it's a, um, 
it's an MFA program in, in prose. Um, but it was this place where I was surrounded by other people who just wanted to write, who were obsessed with words and language and with storytelling. And, and it, I finally had found my people. I felt like after all of this struggle to be safe and to find, you know, kind of build walls around myself and to, to make, you know, make, roots, I guess, to mix that metaphor. <laughs> um, I Here I was uh, just among people who didn't really care about all that and didn't care about all the image and the money and the, um, you know, kind of creating some sort of, I, I guess, persona or, or to having something that they thought, you know, they should seem to have, but they, they just wanted to write. They just wanted to do the thing they were put on this earth to do and, and, and wanted to parse the words and uh, spend hours and hours doing that. And that's what I wanted too. So I'd finally found kind of the thing that called me. You mentioned feeling safe when you got there. And a lot of the early years that you share with us in the book, it was difficult for you to safely be yourself. And when you were writing your college entrance essays, you felt perhaps the reason you didn't get into Harvard was that was the essay that you sent out without having a teacher look at it. And when you got help from a teacher who said, stop relying on a thesaurus, stop going with your SAT words to explain things, and you wrote an essay that was more carefully crafted to reveal a bit about who you were and still meet all of the boxes of what they're looking for, then you pretty much had your choice of schools because you got into so many. And yet when we follow through along on your path through Princeton and what you can share of yourself and what you can't, and then your job at Kinsey and, and going to the Harvard uh, MBA, there's a lot of walking a line of presentation and what's acceptable. When you get to a writing program, there's so much mining your own story and digging into who you are. Did the safety that you felt there really help you unlock that? How do you do that work? Well, you know, I actually think it was much more of a longer journey there because um, it's so funny you should mention that uh, first, you know, essay writing endeavor. I The, the very thing I wanted, um, the thing I wanted most to get into Harvard, I, I, I ruined it. Um, you know, using the very thing that I was always aspiring to find, which is how do I convince the Western world? How do I show them all of my potential? How do I make them believe? I guess it's so much of the obsession underlying this book, but that's the point on which I failed, right? Um, because I wrote um, a very, you know, posturing sort of essay filled with SAT words and thesaurus words, and I didn't show it to anyone. And really the lesson there was, you know, seek out the helpers and go to the professionals and the experts that are there to help you and, 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 um, I guess, learn, learn what it is that, you know, is the language of each place or the, the, um, excuse me. And, you know, the, um, way of being understood, I guess, in every realm, but, and that's what happened after that, that teacher helped me really show myself. Um, but you know, this, this was the beginning of a very long process of learning to show myself because, you know, I, I had become, I had been a refugee, which means I had experienced, swallowed a lot of shame, you know, and that's what you do when you're a refugee, you get used to every day of being so much less than what you were before. You wait and you wait and you wait to be let out of that. So it took many years to get over the idea that I had to prove to the world that I was worth more than this. And a lot of that process was the process of first doing well academically and then going into these kind of places of privilege and power and showing them that I'm good enough. And that's what I think the Princeton and the McKinsey 
and the Harvard were all about, you know, here I am, someone who belongs, and I can speak your language, and I can look the part, and I can sound the part, and I can smell the part, you know, I, I can be, you know, exactly as presentable as you, and I can perform um, in the way that I'm, you know, I, I'm indistinguishable from these others. Um, and that was really important to me. But I think maybe the germ of this idea that it's okay to be myself was planted very early on with that essay. Um, because then, uh, you know, I was always unhappy underneath. I, I am a weird person, Christina. Like, I don't know if you, you, you spend a couple of days with me and you'll be like, this is, this person has kind of a dark mind and a bizarre mind and, and has all kinds of, you know, weird quirks. And, and I, it took me so long to just be cool with that and realize that that's the best part of me. And I think that part of me always wanted to come out. And in those years where I was just, you know, an image, uh, posturing, performing, I also was in a marriage that was to this very preppy European kind of handsome prince type figure, you know, who was just utterly wrong for me. And so my whole life was nothing but image and performance. And, and I just was looking to break out. And, um, and I think in, it's so, so it wasn't so much Iowa and other MFAs and other prose people, other writers around me who made me feel safe in doing that. But it was that I was finally ready to just say, you know what, you're fine. People will judge me if I'm myself, but I prefer it. Like, who cares? I, I would, I, I would rather everyone know all my business and know all my flaws and all the things that are wrong with me, um, and be happy and not always be trying to hide something, um, than to have my perfect image accepted, swallowed, and then I die unhappy. You know, at the end of having created this like kind of like this perfect little, you know, theater. So. Um, so yeah, and, and then I, I also realized by doing so much reading and talking to other writers and, you know, really um, kind of, I guess, talking to myself, thinking honestly, I, I realized that there's nothing new about anything that I've experienced. There's nothing new about any of my foibles, all of the weird things I love about myself and hate about myself and wish to hide but wish to show. None of that stuff's new either. You know, I, I come from other people. And those people come from other people and <coughs> every human quirk has already been had, you know, there's, and there's nothing in my secret shames and strange desires and, you know, all the weirdnesses, none of that is new either. So nothing is embarrassing. I think the best thing about this phase of my life is having been this refugee who swallowed all that shame. Um, and then now being someone who, just full on rejects every shame. Um, I, it, I'm just a, another person. <laughs> you share what to me seemed like a pivotal story earlier on in the book. You're maybe 12 or 13 and you're designing this sort of personality test and your middle school teacher is trying to explain to you about how such things are received. And what you take from it is that if you become an expert, then you're believed unless someone with more expertise than you can debunk you. And I saw your path forward uh, as trying to become that person who had enough expertise to be safe. What I'm hearing you say now is perhaps, but it also made you miserable and you had to go reclaim yourself. Yeah, I think it's so, that's so, um, you're, you're kind of touching on all of these root moments, um, you know, these kind of beginning of, 
these long um, journeys of understanding. But yeah, that at the, I think what that was was um, I I was so desperate, I guess, not to be contradicted or proven wrong or to be told that. I mean, it was all about not wanting to be told that I'm less than the next person, right? Because that's what happened when when we became refugees. I, I was very, very confident as a kid that I was part of this respected family and that people listened to us and that my parents were respected. And then suddenly we were in this situation where we had no money, no degrees that mattered, no respect. And, um, you know, we were dismissed a lot, I guess. And and so for me, the obsession was not just about financial security, which we talked about, but also about the security of knowing <coughs> that in a moment of doubt, I will be trusted, you know, in a moment of not knowing, I'll be considered an expert. And so it was this kind of weird thing to think that unless someone is more of an expert than me, it's my word that will be taken. And that felt like some kind of security. But I guess now, um, now I not only don't need that, but like, I, I realize how wonderful it is to be contradicted. You know, it's funny, you said at the beginning of this, before we started recording, I I wish you had recorded yourself saying this, you were talking about how, you know, it's nice to be contradicted. And you don't mind if we disagree with each other in our conversation here. And I I so agree with that. I mean, I think it's lovely to learn um, from someone else who knows about something more than you. And that doesn't negate all the things that you do know, and that you have lived. And I think that's part of the process of becoming more, um, I think one of my teachers called it porous, um, uh, you know, more just able to live in a world and to have information and, and empathy and, 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 and experiences kind of pass through you and change you. Um, and it's not really about you, is it? Or how you come across it just, it, it's simply about like living life in a way that is um, more tolerable, more uh, effective, better for others, you know, like you are a part of something that's ever changing, if that makes sense. It does. And this conversation leads really well into the heart of the book and the stories that you weave through it that are not yours. Um, And the question that keeps coming up again and again in the book is really, why doesn't the truth count as enough? Um, Why isn't the truth enough? You open by telling us the story of KB, and that story is woven all the way through to the end. As a person who was a refugee, did is that what led you to this topic of looking at other refugee stories and questioning why aren't these people believed? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think that that was a good start for you know, how I became interested, I think, in other people's stories in general. Um, because, you know, remember, I was a fiction writer first. Um, and as a fiction writer, I was, it was just for me about, you know, storytelling, craft language, and I mined my own stories. But at some point in 2015, with everything that happened in the world, you know, refugee crisis, the Trump election, Brexit, all the things, um, I started kind of to pay attention much more to what was happening to people like me. And I wanted to look outward. I also had a child in that year. So I became someone who um, is much, much more outward looking. Um, And so started to go looking for other people's stories um, that I could tell. And I think part of it was understanding that there's a certain kind of story that won't be believed unless it's told in a particular way, particularly by the West. And that now I have this education to tell it in the way that it needs to be told for a Western audience. And so I um, went and found Iranians who had been refugees or were, were refugees now. I went to camps, etc. And 
And that started the process for writing my last nonfiction book, which was The Ungrateful Refugee. Um, there, that was the first time I really kind of at length um, told and dramatized the stories of other people using the skills I had as a storyteller, um, you know, with the express purpose of making a Western audience just understand, be in the story, to be transported, and to understand what it is to um, kind of go through this kind of displacement um, now. Um, and I also wanted to make sense of what it was about the stories of now that relate to my own experience. I mean, how can I, um, I mean, and it wasn't just about empathy. I really wanted to know what changed about the world, about the displacement experience. So, um, yeah, and that, so that's how I started um, writing other people's stories. But then, you know, you ask about this whole belief question that as I was writing kind of the entire arc of the refugee experience using these stories, I kind of kept stopping at one, which was um, this moment of telling your story to asylum officers, kind of the storytelling portion of the um, refugee life where you try to convince this other person, this person who has no stake in your life and, you know, doesn't necessarily care if you live or die to convince them, you know, a bureaucrat that you deserve a place. And how do you do that with your story? It's just so very difficult with all of these obstacles having to do with language and culture and, you know, hostile, a hostile listener and all of these other things. Um, it seems so insurmountable. Um, so, yeah, the, the, those stories, I wanted to make a lot more of them in the book than I had room for. So I saved them up. And then and then this book, while it's not just about refugees, um, I got to kind of go back to those stories and start there with the refugees to talk about how the vulnerable tell stories. You know, to talk about I started with KV because his story I found so astonishing that I couldn't even fit it inside the Ungrateful Refugee. So um, and he was, of course, an asylum seeker who was um, disbelieved and accused of just the most astonishing things. Um, and then I went from his story to uh, other vulnerable people who were disbelieved. For example, those who were wrongfully convicted. You know, I found their stories through the Innocence Project um, and et cetera. But do you want to hear more about KV? If, if you'd like to tell the listeners more about it, it's a difficult story. So if, if you want to talk about the Innocence Project or whatever, whatever you want to share, they're all <laughs> stories that when you read them... Um, it's astonishing that these people didn't get the help immediately, that there's a different criteria besides their horrible story, that the scars on their bodies, the awfulness of what happened to them, that the help isn't automatic. Instead, there's all of these other criteria, people being interrogated for six hours. It, it's uh, for people who haven't read about how these interviews happen, the book will take you through what it really means to be interviewed um, and tell your story. And it's a grueling, uh, gruesome thing to put people through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, what I'll say about KV, because you're right, the story is all there in the book, is that, I, I mean, I was just absolutely transfixed with his story. And the reason is, and, and, and with the fact that it got so little media attention, considering how astonishing it was, because, you know, he came out of Sri Lanka in 2011. And he was... Um, he was tortured. He was uh, suspected of being a Tamil tiger or helping the Tamil tigers. And so when he was detained, he was tortured in kind of a way that is 
a known method for uh, for torture in Sri Lanka, which is hot soldering irons to the back. So he had these very characteristic scars that all of the human rights organizations and NGOs had acknowledged is characteristics of the Sri Lankan government at that time. And, you know, the Home Office knew this, the UK Home Office, etc. And yet when he arrived, by the time he arrived, there had been such desensitization, like um, like the, the home office, uh, home office, um, you know, asylum interviewers had seen so many um, asylum seekers coming through with the same scars, with the same story, and the reason for that is simply because it was happening so much. Um, but you know, they started to disbelieve and to doubt and to be desensitized, and so at some point they created this category to reject, which was they said, well. We don't know if these scars came from torture. So we're going to say that they might have been self-inflicted. They created a category called self-infliction by proxy. They made a little acronym for it, SIBP, which was the idea that KV and others put these scars on their own back just to get asylum into the UK. And then, of course, when you ask, Uh, How would you even do that to yourself? They said, well, that's what the by proxy means. Uh, You hired a doctor to put the scars on your back, you know, even though it goes against every code of, I guess, ethical conduct in the medical field, et cetera. um, That's what must have happened. And of course, there is no burden of proof on that category. Uh, if, If people ask, well, how do you prove this is what happened? They say, well, we don't have to prove it. It's just one reason to possibly disbelieve. It was like a catch-all bucket, where if you refuse to believe every other plausible thing, you can just kind of throw it into this bucket and say, well, we'll reject based on this. Well, this case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And and of course, the Supreme Court said that that's absurd. You can't do that. You can't just create some fictional reason, some absurd fictional reason not to believe someone and give it an official sounding acronym and just use that to dismiss people. But anyway, the story is long and complicated, and it's it's really, really fascinating what he had to go through to be believed. Towards the end of the book, you, you tell us about the outcome of this case and that uh, what you mentioned earlier, that it wasn't getting media attention and that he wanted you to share it. Yeah. He knew that it wasn't getting national or international attention. Can you talk about how he felt about knowing that? Well, I think, I mean, for that, we have to ask ask him, but I think what I saw in his eyes and, and you know, in talking to him was this kind of um, astonishment that this was like the world wasn't listening, you know, because the story, I mean, I think among the um, charity workers and the activists and the lawyers who worked with him and people like me who, you know, wanted to tell his story, um, I mean, it was just always astonishment. Every time when I, I sat in the room with him, it was astonishment. When I talked to his lawyers, it was like, how could this story just be kind of normalized as if it's nothing? Um, and so I think he very much wanted people to know. Um, at the same time, he had fears. So, of course, KB isn't his name. It's it's kind of a, a name that he goes by in the media. Um, so I think it was kind of a, a, a mix of those things. I think he had a very selfless reason for wanting the story to get out there much more, not to be associated with his specific identity, but to be um, out there as something that happens in this very broken world. Um, so I, I think I think that's kind of what I got from the conversation with him. You mentioned um, someone named Huck. Is that correct? In the book, who you have phone calls with, and she shares information with you about cases that she works on. Oh, it's fine. Um, yes. Yes. And 
the different ways people have to present their story, no matter how brutal and awful their story is, because there's only certain criteria out of the story that count. Mm. And most asylum seekers have no idea what one small piece of it may end their case or may make their case because the whole story matters. All of the details of it are what they went through. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, like what part of the story matters. It's such a, it's a question with a different answer in every arena. Um, you know, in, in writing fiction and writing, you know, literature, I guess, um, in telling good stories, um, we know that, you know, every part of the story matters and, and that you, you want to get to these emotional truths and this experience truths, and you want to kind of fill it with rich detail. Um, when I was in, um, you know, in getting my MFA program at Iowa, one of the things that one of my teachers talked about was orphan details, all of the details that don't fit, but they're there, you know, populating a rich life. But in the asylum storytelling arena, those are all the details that can absolutely damn you because they just don't fit. They're just the orphan details of life. And they are the places where you might fall into the trap of contradiction because they are looking for contradiction in order to dismiss your whole story as false, even though real life is full of contradiction. Real stories, true stories are full of um, of things that don't fit or, or happened one time or, or contradict another fact. Um, and, 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 um, yeah, I think it's just about how, um, you know, people are listening and with what purpose. So, you know, in asylum interviews, I think one of the first things that asylum officers listen for is not whether or not this person is in danger or whether or not this person truly fears or whether or not this person deserves our help or, you know, deserves our compassion and empathy, but it's kind of, it's, it's much more about whether or not their story fits a particular definition of refugee, whether they are in danger and fearing for their life for the right reasons. Right. So that's what they're listening for. That's so they're, they want to know if you fit, one of the five categories of, you know, um, one of the, the the five kind of categories that define a refugee, that you have a credible fear for your life on the basis of your race, religion, nationality, um, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. That's the five. Yeah. Um, so, so most, most, most refugees, I'm sorry to interrupt, but they don't realize that they're being evaluated on that. So they kind of tell their story with all kinds of detail and they might say something like, well, you know, I, I don't know, I, maybe they do fit. I converted to Christianity. I was afraid the government came after me, but also, you know, we were out of money and that little detail, we were out of money will damn them because the officer is listening for that and will say, ah, this is a, an economic migrant. This person needed money. They're coming here for work. Even though you just said all that stuff about religion, which does fit, you know, one of the five categories um, of the definition of refugee, they are looking for anything else that they can pin your motivation on so that they can reject you. That is not an honest listener. And most refugees and asylum seekers don't actually realize that that's what they're being evaluated on. Um, and so they kind of damn themselves with that first interview. You show us um, some of the interviewer's notes mm. um, about halfway through the book. And you also give us transcripts of various things in the book. How do you take care of yourself to get through all of this? 
Oh, I didn't expect you to ask that. <laughs> um, I now my mind went right to those um, notes, which were so horrifying. Um, how do I take care of myself? Sometimes I don't. Um, I think I I do neglect. I think my own mental health. Um, often this is this is something that is not a particular strength of mine and has never been ever since my refugee days. When you're in the space of reading the notes and reading the transcripts, mm -hmm. do you have a mindset that you can use to to go back to your business school training and laser through all of the the work? Uh, you mean do I compartmentalize? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I do. Um, so, you know, um, I think generally if you're someone who has spent a lot of time, you know, kind of powering through in uncomfortable situations, I think funny enough, I go back to my Taekwondo days, you know, when I told myself that I have to do Taekwondo in order to get into Harvard, in order to have any kind of life. And that seemed like the only way to do it. I mean, I'm not an athlete <laughs> at all. It was, you know, hours and days of something I didn't want to do, just kind of agonizing and, and, and telling myself, well, there's no choice. So just live through this. You kind of shut off a particular um, part of your mind and continue to go on. You turn on the part of your mind that you need for that. Um, I think I just became someone who could do that. Um, and I think a lot of people who um, go through periods of, you know, uncertainty, of having, of, of having to kind of change their lives altogether, um, where there's only kind of one path out, um, learn to do this. You compartmentalize, you use the part of your brain you need, you shut down the other part and you go through it. Um, and so I've become good at that. Uh, you know, you ask how, how do you read all this and, and take care of yourself? You just do it with the other part of your mind. Um, and then often you pay the price, I guess, a couple of months later when um, suddenly there's a three-day period where you're just like, you've just sat in a chair and stared ahead for three hours, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I think it does catch up with you if you don't take care of you know, your emotional self now and then. You were writing this book, it sounds like uh, during the pandemic in a small village in France. Did you write the whole book during that time or are you just taking us through a uh, part of where you were then? Well, the book, um, it changed. So I've been writing this book for a couple of years. As I mentioned, you know, at the beginning, the the first kind of idea, the germ of this book, um, it came out of the ungrateful refugee because I that chapter about asylum storytelling, um, there was so much more that I didn't get to explore. I um, th that part was just like one part of the refugee life, but I had so much I wanted to say about being believed and performance and what is how we believe, how we tell stories, how we receive stories. I mean, that just was its own book. So I decided after I was finished with that book that I would write a book on belief um, and believing and performing. And, and so I started it with the KV story, as I mentioned. And then I went looking for the other researched portions. You know, I talked to the charities, the Innocence Project, Freedom from Torture, all the others um, that I used for my research. Um, and I started to kind of outline those stories. And then I started to also do that second thread, which is, you know, my own um, 
reflections, you know, from literature and from philosophy, et cetera, about belief. And then the third thread, my own memoir portions, which I always include, I was going back to my childhood. What is it that I found um, difficult about being a disbelieved person, about fakery, performance, all that stuff. But as I was doing this, and the book was starting to take shape in these three threads, which is how I always write. It's how I write the wrote The Ungrateful Refugee, um, something big happened, which is that first p- the pandemic hit. When the pandemic hit, I went, I was in Paris on, on a fellowship uh, to write this book, in fact. And so I was, you know, in libraries and, and, and talking to people and researching kind of deep into that phase when the pandemic suddenly displaced us again, and it took us to um, a little village um, with my partner's family. So while we were holed up in this village, I was continuing to do my research and to do my work. And then, um, and, and of course, you read about that in the book. And then Josh died, which changed the book entirely, as you know. Suddenly, he became a, a huge part of the book because at first, this book was set to be something very similar to The Ungrateful Refugee and that I look at the world and I say, well, this is what I see that's wrong. This is what I think you should do differently, world. Um, And uh, this is kind of some research to back that up and philosophy to back that up and my own experience as a refugee to back that up. But here I was in a situation where I had not believed someone. You know, just to tell the listeners, I guess, um, a big thread in this book is my partner's brother who took his own life in the middle of the pandemic. Um, And Josh had struggled with mental health issues his entire life. And he had threatened suicide. And he had, I never believed him, never. And I judged him harshly because he seemed like a you know, the son of a privileged family, uh, someone with education and with passports. Gosh, he was so free, I thought. You know, he had it all. He was a a white man with options. Um, And he presented in a way that was, um, I guess, you know, healthy and charming and interesting. And um, I thought, how could a person like this not thrive in the world? Um, I judged him by my own parameters and and through the lens of my own story and then and then suddenly he was gone and I was writing a book about belief and being disbelieved and and how we listen to other people's stories and I had utterly failed to listen to this man's story this man who was close to my my partner who was my partner's brother who was you know um it, it was just so damning and and it made me really grapple with this question of um Gosh, I mean, what do I really know about anything? How how can how can I you know make sense of the world when all of my instincts are wrong at these times? Um, and also the question of, um, I guess, all of these things that that we I guess think about and grapple with when we want to remake the world, when we want to make the world better, um, when we write these kind of you know thoughtful books and and articles and things about you know how things should be. Um, how do we deal with our own humanity and our own extremely flawed nature and the fact that we are writing from inside this flawed human perspective about flawed human perspective? I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. You have to kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say other than I had to rewrite that book. You tell us um, in the first third of the book, you say the truth isn't enough. Most people aren't even listening for it. They're listening for something else. 
You go on to say, I too listen to stories differently. I size up each person waiting for familiar signals. When we learn about Josh later in the book, we we hear you in as you were then, not in hindsight, listening for familiar signals. And what he signaled to you with successful parents, three successful siblings, opportunities, was that he was spoiled, that they needed to be tougher on him and stop giving in to what felt like demands of privilege. It was in hindsight, when you had this profound loss, that you realized you hadn't truly listened to him and truly understood why Sam, Josh's brother, responded to him and took sometimes a phone call from him five minutes, every five minutes for an hour upon hour. Yeah. Wait, sorry. I I was so lost inside the things that you were just reciting. Um, But tell me the question. I don't know if it was a question. Um, It's just a, a wondering about how you came to forgive yourself for being who you were. And clearly in the book, you're doing the work and explaining how you saw it, how you've come to see it. And it really does undergird um, the, the formation of the book. You go back to thinkers and scholars, you mine through Holocaust stories about when does a story not mesh with what someone is poised to believe based on cultural signals, based on what seems too much or seems to be a moment when someone could have chosen differently. You have stories where asylum seekers are disbelieved because if they escape from a captor once, then they're not believed that they were recaptured um, because if they were capable of escaping, then they're capable of escaping. And, And through that, I saw you mining who you were that didn't know how to believe what was going on with Josh. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and one of the things that you said, um, I thought I thought it very interesting that you said you kind of parsed the different perspectives, my perspective, the moment I was looking for the signals and disbelieving, and also then my perspective after looking back and trying to make sense of it. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, I was, I felt that only in that moment when we were still in you know, the pandemic and I was writing this book and it was also very close. Could I actually write from both perspectives? Because, you know, as you study these stories, you, you change, you know, what kind of signals you look for. And I was very, very afraid that I would lose access to the person that I was when I was actually looking Josh in the face and disbelieving him, you know, and I wanted to write that from the perspective that I had. Um, Because, you know, we remake those signals all the time. You know, we, we, we want to believe um, the people who are telling the truth. And we think that we've, the signals that we have, the, the shortcuts we've created are all about thinking that we have a good system for believing truthful performances, I guess, um, for parsing out the truth. But so when we discover, I guess, that those are wrong, um, that they're flawed in some way, we very quickly remake them. And I think I'm right now very interested in, <coughs> excuse me, how my own shortcuts and signals are being remade um, from all this, from all the things that I read in the aftermath of Josh and everything that I kind of went back and revisited about my interactions with him, everything about how I was brought up, you know, kind of remaking those to make room for people like him. 
um, I feel like at some point I will lose access to the person I was when he was sitting in the room. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think all of this book is largely a sense-making exercise, you know, um, how, like, how did I believe, what was I looking for? What do I look for now? I think maybe in some ways more importantly, since there's many more people in my future who I will probably, you know, believe and disbelieve using my shortcuts. We don't always keep on our most alert brains, do we? Well, I mean, no, because I think I went into writing this book with the understanding that all of those, you know, I, I didn't have the language for it until I did the research for the book, but I think I kind of understood instinctively and from the time I was a kid that truth a truthful performance was very different in one culture and in another in one you know subculture and in another i mean there were so many different ways that we judge what is credible and believable and and so it's very easy to you know kind of go in with the wrong mask on um it's very very easy to use your own personal kind of familiar signals to judge someone who comes from an entirely different um kind of culture of storytelling so when we say we have an instinct for whether or not people are truthful i mean where did you develop that instinct you developed it in your own communities um from your own people so all you're looking for is familiarity i mean that seems very very intuitive um and it seems like such a very um kind of brazen and kind of sketchy claim to make that you have some kind of um, sense for the truth so that you understand what kind of physical signals people use um, when they're telling the truth. I mean, that that's absurd simply because people's physical signals are different from country to country, you know? Um, the, 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 the kind of physical communication that we find even respectful is different from country to country. So um, it's, it's a flawed assertion, the notion that, you know, we can somehow tell that we have, that even that, even that there are, you know, professionals who can somehow um, read, you know, dishonesty signals, et cetera. And so that all seems like hokum. You tell us in the book um, that, one of the things you learn at Harvard Business School is how to be believed, how to be the one people want to believe. You also grapple in other parts of the book with who benefits from the rules and who they were created for. When people are in a terrible spot in their life, their stories aren't neat and they don't fit a set narrative and they come bearing horrible news that no one wants to believe. Is this set of rules that's developed by the elite to support the future of their elite children, is it part of at the heart of this litmus test that we have ongoing of what's believable, what we want to believe, and how you're supposed to present it so it's comfortable enough for us, or it ticks enough of our boxes? Yeah. I mean, I think, hmm. yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a chicken and egg thing embedded inside that question in that, you know, have we created a system that we believe is best for our privileged children? And now we're trying to make that, um, preserve that system by testing outsiders for it. Or, you know, have we created a way of keeping outsiders out? And then we're teaching that to our children. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of a little bit circular, but I think there is definitely this Western notion of, um, you know, who is, who has potential, who is, you know, worthy who should be given power and privilege in this world that 
wherever it came from, and I'm sure, and of course, it's much more complex than any one place, but um, we do teach it to our privileged children. It's it's the way we've designed our, our systems in the West. You know, you um, are around a particular kind of people who are constantly performing in a way that you find natural, that you find honest, but it's really just a performance of privilege. You you know, teach them the things that they need to do in order to set themselves apart, to showcase their talents. You teach them a particular language of prosperity and success and, um, and again, potential. And that carries them through to all of these institutions, again, of power and privilege. And then they, in turn, weed out others using these exact same criteria. And, um, you know, and there are many outsiders like myself who very quickly kind of gain access to the code, you know, and, and, and learn the language and learn the performance and kind of, and they welcome you in, in the, in the name of diversity. Um, but there are plenty of exceptional people with true stories and um, wonderful things to offer who, you know, never go looking for that code. They have no reason. They have their own, you know, they come from their own places where, um, you know, a particular language and way of being is is accepted, and that's how they present themselves. It's the most honest way for them to present themselves, but it's but we're taught to suspect it because it's very different, you know, to us. I think one example I often use is the one about you know Iranian storytelling um, versus Western storytelling. Um, I had in for my first book, for my first nonfiction book, The Ungrateful Refugee, I talked to a lot of asylum lawyers, and one of the asylum uh, lawyers that I spoke to was this guy in Amsterdam who, you know, he spends a lot of his time teaching his clients to tell their stories in the Dutch way because they're, you know, this is Holland. And um, he said that one of his, his, the most problematic group that he has, the hardest kind of cultural training he has to do is is for the Iranians. He says, the Iranians are so difficult. And I said, you know, why? And he said, because they tell stories so differently. They don't, and, you know, the Dutch are very, very direct, very, very literal, very to the point. And he said, the problem is Iranians, they don't start their story at the moment of their troubles with the West. I'm sorry, they don't, excuse me. They don't start their story at the moment of their troubles with the government, which is exactly where you should start an asylum story. And they don't start their stories um, with even, you know, their their youth or with their family's background or with their birth, they start at the beginning of the universe. And I laughed and I said, well, the reason for that is because when we were growing up, every single one of us started every single story with a start of the universe rhyme. That is how stories are told to children. Um, So, and the purpose of that is to really put everything, put the story and its characters into context, to teach humility, to show the greatness of the world, and to also show that, you know, there are other powers at play in the lives of every individual. It's not all about, you know, this perfect individual heroic agency, which we're taught to look for in Western stories. It's about much bigger forces. And um, that's how we learn to tell stories. And so when you have an asylum seeker coming in from Iran and sitting down across from a Western, let's say, Dutch uh, asylum officer, um, they, they, they just think it's absolutely arrogant to start with their own troubles, you know, they start at the beginning and they think they're being succinct, but they seem suspicious to the Western listener. I think that's because we just have different codes. And, you know, as you said at the beginning of this question, yeah, we teach it to our own children and we keep other people in the dark. 
what do you hope readers will get out of this book? Um, well, I hope that they start to question their own shortcuts a little bit, that they're, they become a little bit more humble about who seems sketchy and who seems credible to them. That, you know, actually the biggest thing though, is that they forgive themselves for mistakes. Because I think one of the biggest things I learned to do is not just to understand that I too have shortcuts and codes and things that I require from other people, performances that I require from other people, but that also I'm going to make mistakes and I've made some big ones. And I think we need to make it a little easier in our world to confess to those things and to say, you know what? Wow, I failed right then. Um, and, And that has to be something that we can get past and become better. And I think that's really the only way to reach people um, on the other side of of certain big debates. Um, For example, I I don't want to alienate all of the people that currently are afraid of, you know, immigration and refugees. I, I want to slowly bring them to our side to see that actually they can, they can love uh, having a community that has, um, you know, people from all over the world, that refugees and immigrants can be a wonderful addition to their community. But the only way they're going to um, maybe see that is to have interactions with refugees and immigrants and to also be accepted, I guess, and to have their past rejections, I guess, forgiven. And so I think that at the center of this book, I think, is a story that will show um, how flawed I guess it'll show me grappling with my flaws and my mistakes. But I think what I would hope is um, for readers to, I guess, see an opportunity to change their mind about something, to, you know, look at the way that they've behaved towards strangers in the past and to decide to change it and to forgive themselves and to know that, you know, others will forgive them too and to move forward. You know, I, I think this is very kind of indirect effect a book like this might have, but I, I hope that it does, you know, I hope that it presents, I guess, a, a more welcoming and open and empathetic and flawed perspective into um, the lifelong practice of belief, believing, and you know, building communities and relationships. Thank you so much for being here today, Dina Nieri, and telling us about Who gets believed when the truth isn't enough? This is the Academic Life on New Books Network, and I hope you will please join us again.